probably some, I don't know, 20-some years ago now, I was asked to come to uh, a bank headquarters in the Dallas area, a pastor church in the Dallas area, and they had recently had a suicide uh, amongst their employees. And uh, I was invited to come in and speak to some of the employees. And I don't know, there were maybe 15, 20, 30 employees gathered. I don't remember the number now. And, of course, I, I came in when we talked about that. And, of course, when you ask a Baptist preacher to come talk to anyone, you're going to get the gospel. And, of course, I shared the gospel with Jesus Christ with them that day. And one young lady in that group, um, after that, she came to our church. And not long after that, I had the privilege of leading her to Jesus Christ. She met a young man in our church. They got married. I was privileged to be there to, to, uh, for their wedding, for the birth of their first child, um, and uh, to disciple uh, them in, in, in the things of God. They're with us here this morning. Sylvia, would you stand up? I don't want Greg standing up. Just Sylvia. <laughs> See that lady right there? And all those kids, all the family, you can all stand up. I'm going to embarrass all of you right now. That's Greg and Sylvia Parker, dear friends of mine. I led her to Christ, and the, uh, those, that family is a family of God. And it all came, it all got started with Sylvia, Mark, because somebody cared enough to say, hey, would you talk to us about suicide? And so God's going to do some great things this September with what you got going on. So you all be in prayer about that and ask Mark, what can I do to help? Join me, if you would, in the book of Romans chapter 12 and pray for me, if you will. I, my voice is wanting to go away. And maybe in a few minutes you might say, I wish it would. Uh, but um, we're going to be in Romans chapter 12. But now get your fingers ready and get your Bible ready because we're going to be flipping back and looking at quite a bit of the book of Romans here this morning. Paul in the book of Romans says, and if you would and if you can, please stand with me as we read God's word and then remain standing. I'd like for you to pray with me over this message. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God which is your reasonable service. Let's pray together. Father, bless your word and the reading of it. And fill me, Lord, with your spirit that I might faithfully convey the message you have here before us. And, Lord, may you use this to honor your son, Jesus, and to build us up in our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Paul's letter to the Romans is the greatest ex position of the gospel ever given. The first 11 chapters in Paul's letter spell out in great detail the nature, the definition, and the benefits of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we get here to chapter 12, after having told us all about the gospel, Paul says, I beseech you, I beg you, I urge you, therefore, to present your bodies 
a sacrifice, a living sacrifice to God. That therefore points back to all that he said before. When you see therefore, you look to see what it's there for. It really means because of that, I'm asking you to do this. I get that fixed in your mind because that's what we're going to look at this morning. Because of chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, I'm going to ask you to do 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16. This is a pivotal point in the letter to the Romans. The first 11 chapters are primarily doctrinal in nature, and the last five are primarily uh, practical in nature. The first 11 chapters of the gospel or uh, of the book of Romans tell us what the gospel is. The last five tell us what to do about it. And so we're at that pivotal point here where Paul says, therefore, do this. Paul's letter to the Romans is the fifth letter that he wrote chronologically, but it's the first in your New Testament because it is of supreme importance. All of other Paul's other letters were written primarily uh, to correct a problem in some local church. But this letter was written as an explanation of our salvation. It is the greatest exposition of the gospel ever given. To understand the therefore then of chapter 12, we need to go back to the beginning. So take your Bible back to Romans 1 with me. And Paul begins there in that first chapter, and you know this saying. He says in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of that. The gospel, as Paul tells us in Corinthians, is the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. And he says here, that is God's power to save Well, then that shows us we have a problem. What do you mean saved? What do I need to be saved from? Well, exactly what the angel said to uh, Joseph when Mary was about to give birth. He said, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Christ didn't come to save you from hell. That's a byproduct of your sin. He came to save you from sin. And that's what Paul's talking about here. In the first three chapters, he lays out what we would call the condemnation of humanity. He he says, you are all under sin. Look in chapter 1 there, about verse number 18 and on down. He says the wrath, he said two things are revealed in the gospel. The righteousness of God and the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is because of the righteousness of God. God is holy. And God will not allow sin to go on. God is holy and will not overlook your sin. God is holy and will not sweep your sin under the rug, as it were. God is a righteous God. And therefore, He not only can and will, He must judge sin. In the first three chapters, Paul lays out the condemnation of humanity. In, in uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2, he talks about the, the condemnation. He lists several sins involved there. I won't 
take your time up looking at them. But he says, listen, if you haven't committed this one, you've committed that one or this one or the other one. And listen, we all go to Romans 1. We'll find somebody, oh, that's what you do. Yeah, and that's what you do, and you're guilty of that. And we don't like to think of ourselves as condemned sinners. I mean, you know, maybe terrorists or child rapists or somebody like that. But God says, no. He says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And lest you get judgmental about it, he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest another, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. Listen, I can find all kinds of fault with you. And you can find all kinds of fault with me. And that's really what Facebook is made of. Okay? Um, it's all you, you, you. It's it's all of our, our Congress and Senate are doing today. They're pointing the other side of the aisle. It's your fault. It's your fault. Everybody's got a finger to, to point. And God here in chapters one, two, and three says it's you. You're the problem. In chapter three, if you look in verse number nine, he says we have concluded all under sin. The idea of that being under sin, you're under the domination of sin. You're under the power. You're under the uh, the 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 presence of sin sin has its grips on you the picture there is really of a drowning man it just you ever got so busy on your job that they just kept throwing things at you and throwing things at you and you feel like i i I don't have time to breathe that's the idea behind this word here sin is suffocating you you are drowning in it you are under sin that phrase under sin points out the condition Our condition. Look down in verse 19. He says you're under something else there. He said we know that whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become, look at the word, guilty before God. You're going to give an account to God. He says you're guilty. Under sin describes our condition. Under the law describes our condemnation. God has found the world. He has indicted you. He has convicted you. And he has sentenced you. The wages of sin is death. That's our problem. I don't need to convince you of that. If you're above the age of eight or nine years old, you know that. I found out when I was about seven that I was a sinner and nobody needed to tell me. You have a conscience. The conscience, your conscience tells you you're a sinner. You have God's Word. God's Word tells you you're a sinner. God's Word says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Look at verse number 10. Here's the problem. Here's the key. Here it is wrapped up in one sentence, one phrase. Chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous. Please say that with me. None righteous righteous that includes you and your mother and your grandmother there's no one righteous god has concluded all under sin he said you're all gone out of the way you are together become unprofitable there is none that doeth good no not one he said your mouth is like an open tomb a sepulcher the poison of asps is under their lips He says, the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Every one of those statements is a statement from the Old Testament that God gave to Paul to use to talk about you and I. We are messed up. 
If you've ever tried to do right, you know it's the hardest thing you've ever tried to do in your life. I tried it once. I got till about noon that day, Mark. Maybe. I think I did. You sin and you don't even know you're sinning. The Bible says the thought of the foolish is sin. The Bible says the plowing of the wicked is sin. That farmer out in this field plowing, not giving glory to God, he's sinning while he's plowing. Folks, we are a dead race. We are Adam's race. Why in the world do you think we've been 6,000 years and haven't figured out how to get along with one another yet? Because we can't get along with God. The peace that we lack amongst one another starts because we have no peace with God. We are His enemies. We are sinners by nature. We are sinners by birth. We are sinners by choice. And God says in verse 19 of chapter 3, all the world is guilty. That is the problem. But thank God, look at verse 21, there's a provision for that. In chapter 3, verse 21, Paul writes, and the first word there is, but. Thank God for that but. Amen? But, he says, now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all them that believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He said, you are a condemned people, but the righteousness of God is manifested. Who is that righteousness? It's Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God in Jesus Christ, he said, is witnessed by the law and the prophets. All the Old Testament points to him. When Jesus came, he came for one reason, to die. The just for the unjust. The godly for the ungodly. The righteous for the unrighteous. Paul tells us unequivocally of the universal depravity of man and the absolute holiness of God. And then he tells us there is an answer. I want us to focus on three words real quickly here in verses 24 and 25. And the first word I want to look at is that word justified. Paul says here, being, verse 24, justified freely by His grace. Justification is an act of free grace by which God pardons the sinner. It's an an act of giving you His righteousness, declaring the guilty innocent, the unrighteous righteous, the sinful holy because of the blood of Jesus. That's what justified means. It doesn't just simply mean your sins are forgiven. It means you are righteous. How does that happen? How can God say to you, Mark, a sinner, I find no fault in you? I thought God didn't sweep sin under the rug. He doesn't. He can't. He won't. He sent Jesus to become your sin. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that God made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin. Why? That we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That is justification. 
Justification is you, your sins are placed on Jesus and his righteousness is placed on you. How'd that take place? Well, it took place before you were born. 2,000 years ago in the darkness about noon on a day when Jesus was hung naked on a cross. And in that darkness, he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Which translated is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the only time in the New Testament where you will ever see Jesus calling God by anything other than Father. When he taught his disciples to praise, he prayed after this manner, Our Father which art in heaven. On the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The night before his crucifixion, he said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Every time he prays to God, he always calls him Father. But that one time, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'll tell you why. He became me. He became you. He bore in his body our sins. He drank the cup of God's wrath. Everything I've ever done that would make God my enemy, everything I've ever thought, everything I've ever said, everything I've ever done to to desire and to deserve his wrath, Jesus became in that moment on the cross, and he cried out, My God, my God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken so that I could be brought in. He was forsaken so that I could be God's child, so that I could now call him Father. He became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's justification. And then he says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In justification, God provides a righteousness which we don't have. In redemption, he makes a payment we can't make. It is a ransom paid for your soul. The wages of sin is death. The price that Jesus paid was he gave his life. Redemption is buying back out of the marketplace. It's, it's taking back by a purchase Redemption is the ransom price paid for the deliverance of sinners from the bondage of sin and the penalties of God's violated law to release you from that power and that condemnation of sin. Oh, I wish I had time to talk more about this. You know, if I could just find a sinner, I got a good message for him. Problem is, I can't find any sinners anymore. Everybody thinks they're okay. Can I just get real personal with you? Being in this church today doesn't make you okay. Being a Baptist doesn't make you okay. Having a mom and dad that believe in Jesus doesn't make you okay. You have never put your faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. You are under sin. You are under the wrath of God. That doesn't mean I'm better than you. I'm not. I just found the answer for my sins. And I want you to find it too. 
He paid a price you couldn't pay. He gives a righteousness you don't have. And then that third word, propitiation. Now, that's a word I don't use every day. John, do you use that? You're a pretty smart fellow. Do you use propitiation? Once a week. He's, he's on top of things. It's probably been taken out of most of your modern Bibles. It's probably a bad thing that they did. Uh, I don't know what they put in his place, but propitiation is a very descriptive word. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he did not just die for me. It wasn't just manward. There was an offended party in all this sin. You know, if, 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 if Mark does something against John here and I say, well, you know, I forgive you. Well, that's good and well, but he didn't offend me. He offended John. When you offend someone, let's say you have a a $1,200 debt because of something you did wrong, and you go to the person before you go to court and say, what is it going to take to to make this right? I I crashed your car, you got hurt, whatever the case may be. What can I do? What, What will satisfy you? And they say, this will satisfy me. You might get upset and say, well, that's too high, that's too much. But the thing is, they're the offended party. In sin, God is the offended party. And at the cross, Jesus propitiated. The word is used for the mercy seat that covered the uh, golden altar in in the uh, Holy of Holies when the high priest would go in once a year and put the blood upon the, the mercy seat. That word is the propitiatory. And when God saw the blood, he said, I'm satisfied. I'm propitiated. Folks, let me tell you something. You cannot propitiate God. You say, well, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to do this. I'm going to make things right, God. Me and God got a deal. You and God don't have a deal. God has a deal with Jesus. It was God's idea before the foundation of the world. And he sent Jesus to pay for your sins. And the Bible says when he was bruised, when he was broken, God saw that and said, I'm satisfied. The law has been met. The anger has been diffused. And Jesus gave you a justification, a righteousness you don't have. He paid a price you couldn't pay. And he propitiated an offense that you cannot propitiate. Now, Going on in Romans, how you say, well, how, how does a person get that? I mean, how do you, you know, that's good that Jesus died for us. It's good that he gave his life. How does that, how do I get that? What do I pay? Where do I sign up? He goes on chapters 4 and 5 and says, you can't get it. You can't earn it. Five, no, six times in chapter 5 he says, it's a free gift. A free gift. A free gift. 623 says, for the wages of sin is death. There's your condemnation. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You can't earn a gift. You can't work for a gift. You receive it. If you want your sins forgiven, you want to know Christ as your Savior, you can't offer Him anything for your salvation. It's a free gift. Now, why did God do this? We saw the problem. The problem is we're sinners. We saw the provision. Christ died for our sins. What's the purpose of this all? Well, to get us out of hell, right? No. To save us from our sins. That's part of it. Go to chapter 8. 
verse 28. Paul says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Notice that purpose there, he said, is to conform you and I to the image of Jesus Christ. The reason Jesus went to the cross, the reason they let him beat him, the reason he was buried, the reason he died and rose again was to create a race of people in his image. To take sinners condemned and justify them and make them like Jesus. Now, I don't know about you. I'm not a whole lot like him. I've got a long ways to go yet. That's God's plan for me, and that's God's plan for you. He redeems us to make us like Jesus, a people that love God and are loved, are lo- are loved by God and that love God in return. This purpose is eternal. You know what's exciting about that, Mark? Everybody I meet is somebody for whom Christ died and somebody that God says, I want him to be in my kingdom. I want him to be like my son, Jesus. And so I can't go anywhere. You can't go anywhere and meet anybody that's outside the realm of God's purpose. Now, chapters 9, 10, and 11, I'm just going to have to, you have to forgive me. I'm just going to have to skip through them real quick. They deal with God's dealings with the nation of Israel and the Gentile nations and his purpose and election and how they fit into God's purpose and his plans for the future. And then he gets to the end of chapter 11 and he says that God, he says, of whom, through whom, and to whom, speaking of God, are all things. In other words, God is the reason you're here, God is the reason you exist, and God is the reason and to whom be glory forever and ever. Now, track with me here. Now we're in chapter 12, verse 1. Paul says, you were condemned. Can you remember, can you go back in your mind to when you didn't know Christ? Think about what would have happened to you if you had never heard the gospel. Where would you be today? Where would you be without Jesus Christ? You'd be lost and on your way to hell or maybe there already. And Jesus came and lifted you in his, by his grace and freely justified you, paid the price for your sins and appeased God's wrath and said, this this one's mine. This one's mine. The devil tried to get you. He said, no, you can have him. He's mine. You've been saved. Now Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, based on that, because of that, I beg you. I don't know why he has to beg. I never understood that. Why he would have to urge us so vehemently. I beg you, he says, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Let me, let me walk through this in this two minutes, two or three minutes here. What he's saying is here, the only reasonable response to the gospel of Jesus Christ is that you and I live a life of sacrifice and service to God. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice. He's using Old Testament picture here of a sacrificial offering but here the sacrifice isn't a dead animal here the sacrifice is a living person 
And, it, and he's saying, I want you, I beseech you to present your bodies a living sacrifice. You know what we call that? We call that worship. In the Old Testament, you know the story of Isaac and, and Abraham when they went to Mount Moriah and he was going to make an offering of his son. He said, I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. You don't worship God without a sacrifice. In the Old Testament or the New. You don't worship God without a sacrifice. Our sacrifice is Jesus Christ. And now he's saying, for you to follow me, I want you to be a living sacrifice. It's worship. Now, we don't like that word sacrifice. Because sacrifice is the act of giving up something. It's the act of giving up something valued for the sake of something else. Regarded as more important or worthy. And we don't like it because it's giving up something. Many people still believe the notion that in order to get ahead, in order to move forward, I simply need to just get and get and get and get and get and get. That progress is me getting all I can get. Get all you can and can all you get. But listen, that doesn't work in any way, shape, or form. Try that with your automobile. Now, when you go to the gas station, and you fill up your tank with gas. And I don't know about you, but I always like it when I see that needle go full. Put the smile on my face. Don't you like a full tank of gas? I do, especially if I've got to go somewhere. If I get in the car in the morning, and I've got to drive all the way to South Austin, and I look down and say, oh, I've got to put gas in. I'm sitting near empty. That's not a good feeling. I like to look over and see that needle way over on. On full. Now, some of you, you're more modern. You say, I'm old school. I got the needle. And some of you got those little bars, you know, they build up, you know, at full, and then they go down. But it's always good when it's full. You know what that means? That means getting. I've been getting. I filled my tank with gas. Now, I got a full tank of gas, and that's a good feeling. But what happens then? If I want to move forward, if I want to progress, I've got to start the engine, put it in gear, Step on the accelerator. What happens now? I begin to burn the fuel, or the engine begins to burn the fuel. You have to sacrifice that fuel if you want to go anywhere. Let me say that again. You have to sacrifice the fuel if you want to go anywhere. That full tank can't stay full. If it stays full, you're going nowhere. You've got to burn it. You've got to use it. You've got to sacrifice it. Everything that matters in this world requires sacrifice. There is no progress without sacrifice. In every area of life, this is true. Listen, in your marriage, if you've only been married for six months, okay, well, just you, you write this down and go visit it later. You're going to need it. Marriage requires sacrifice if it's going to be strong and healthy. Gentlemen, you have to sacrifice that boom, pow, explosive movie and watch, you know, uh, Emma or whatever her name is. Jane Austen, Jane Austen thank you. You got to sit down and watch those every now and then. Sacrifice. You don't want to go to the mall, but sacrifice. Ladies. You understand this. When he says five minutes and he's watching a football game, he does not mean five minutes. 
Sacrifice. You got to learn to give and take. Everything in life requires sacrifice to be healthy and move forward. Your family. Listen, Dad, you're going to have to give up some things to spend time with your family. But it's worth it. Sacrifice. It may be less time on the golf course. It may be less time in the office. Sacrifice. If you want good health, you're going to have to give up some things. You have to give up all those sugars and those fats and those sweets and those carbs. And you're going to have to give up that time on the couch and get out and do some exercise. Why? Because it takes sacrifice to move forward. It doesn't matter if it's your job, your school, your athletics, your leadership. It's the same in your walk with God. It's the same in church. Worship is not a 20-minute time thing on Sunday morning. It's a lifetime lifestyle thing. And it requires worship. Let me say this. There's about this much chance. You probably can't see the light between my two fingers here. There's about that much chance your child is going to play professional sports. And there's a 100% chance that he or she is going to stand before God and give account of themselves. And yet Christian parents all over this country sacrifice church, sacrifice Sunday school, sacrifice their children. So they can play ball on Sundays. Shame on us. I had to tell my boys. My boys love football. I love football. I had to tell them, we're not playing football this year. Because they play the games on Sunday morning. You're not going to be there. You're going to be in church with mom and dad. We'll, we'll sacrifice church, but we won't sacrifice baseball. Or softball. Or dance. Or cheerleading. It's time God's people said, you know what? I'm going to sacrifice those things to give my life to God. That's a living sacrifice. When we pass the offering plate around here, that's a sacrifice. You are giving up part of your income to make a difference in this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your, your tithe, that's 10% of what you, get, what you make. But that's a portion and I want to say this to you, if you're not giving, if you're not tithing, get started. See, why? Because God requires it of us. He says, sacrifice. I'm giving up. You know, I could, I could buy a boat with that. I could build on. I could add on to the house with that. I could do this with that. Sacrifice. Let me give you a good example, a good opportunity for you to sacrifice. Jan, June 24th. Is that it? 24th to 29th? Vacation Bible School, VBS. We need workers. You say, well, I, I got things planned that week. I was going to go golf and sacrifice. Give up something of value to do something that's equally or more valuable. We need 10 people. I've already forgotten what we call them. Do you remember? Crew leaders. Thank you. 10 crew leaders. That can take five or six children from space to space, from station to station. No teaching required, just loving kids. If you can love kids for five days a week and be here for them and to get them from point A to point B and sacrifice what you plan to do that week, you know what that is? That's an odor of a sweet smell to God. That's worship. Let me bring this to a close. Jesus died for you so that you would 
live for him. That's a living sacrifice. What does a living sacrifice look like? Well, Paul says here, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Isn't it interesting that he didn't say, give your heart to Jesus? That's not what he said. Now, I understand that. That's understandable. Nothing wrong with that. That's not what he's saying. He didn't say, give your heart to Jesus. He said, present your bodies. You know, sometimes we say, well, at least his heart was in the right place. What we mean by that is he didn't get the job done. Well, I'll be with you in spirit. What that means is you aren't going to be here. He said, I want you to present your bodies. Why? Because the body is the vehicle of action. It's how things get done. And God says, I want you to give us your body. Everything you do, you do within the body. And not only did he say body, but he says bodies, plural. This isn't an individual thing. This is a church thing. Response to the gospel is a church thing. And we work together. Think of what could happen in Georgetown. Think of what could happen in this area. Think of what could happen in September with this depression and suicide uh, event that we're holding. Think of what could happen if all the bodies got together and say, Hey, what can I do? Put me to work. I want to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ in Georgetown. I want to be a part of what God's doing at Main Street Baptist Church. What can we do for the gospel? What more can we do in this body here at Main Street for the gospel of Jesus Christ? I read a story this morning. I'll close with it. A guy named Bob Andrews. He lost his sight in the Vietnam War. Came home. His fiance encouraged him and said, don't worry. There's two of us in this. We can get this done. The guy goes out golfing. He can't see. And he golfs. See, how's he doing? His wife, which was his fiance, his wife lines him up, puts the ball where it needs to be, and tells him how far he's got to go with what, what the yard is. And they go golfing together. I just thought that was wonderful. Now, you know what? I saw that and I thought about the church. Because we don't all have the same gifts. And Paul said, some of us are an eye, some of us are an ear, some of us are a hand. Look at your hand. It can't see. And you look at the thing and say, well, I can't do that. So what? There's an eye in the church to do that. And the eye can't grab things. We need you. We need your bodies. God said, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Give up the things of this world. That doesn't mean you have to... Your kids have to quit playing sports, and you know we're going to be at church twenty-four-seven. All no, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about don't sacrifice the important things, the eternal things, for the temporal. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, God, help us to be living sacrifices, and help us, oh God, to to not give you the leftovers of our lives but to give you ourselves, our bodies, everything within us as living sacrifice, that we might worship you and that others might come to know you. We pray this in Jesus' name.